Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's show, we're asking how much weight a player's weight should carry. We're going on a Jao Felix deep dive and we're reinventing the laws of the game again. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, he's our hero. It's the hero we didn't know we needed. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate that introduction, Ryan. You brought the energy today. Well done, sir. I'm having an energy-related drink, as we were discussing before we recorded, Taylor. It's got vitamins and electrolytes, and I'm buzzing right now with uh, a tablet and some water. Are, are you one of those people that considers that an energy drink? Because if so, I don't like you. Are you one of those people who like eats a candy and then is like, well, I'm going to be awake for 12 hours? Mm, what answer can I give to make you still like me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I think an energy drink for me is like, as, as you uh, can attest, it's a... Grande latte with an extra shot thrown in there, which I think made yeah. Ryan literally shake for like eight hours. So uh, I think yeah. I think by contrast, your water is probably slightly a healthier option. When we were together in Brooklyn, Taylor would uh, start every morning with a Gatorade mixed with a cold brew coffee and, uh, <laughs> and uh, four pounds of sugar in it. Was that right, Taylor? <laughs> I try to avoid the sugar. I wish I could just <laughs> do the black coffee, which sometimes I can. But oftentimes, sometimes you need the cream and sugar, even though that in and of itself was a confusing point. Cream versus milk. We've lost like eight to 90 percent of our listeners mm-hmm, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, with two of your co-hosts as I well, just to add that yeah. in. <laughs> well, let's pull them back in and try and pull back in at least one co-host. Joe Lowry. Hello. How are you, sir? Hello, Ryan. I'm back. I I really couldn't leave this wonderful foursome. I am pumped to be here talking about listener questions and talking about how Barcelona are fun, question mark, slash maybe (laughs) bad at everything that they do. I mean, I'm excited for this. Evergreen content, Joe. You're quite right. That's uh, coming up shortly. Uh, Joining us, though, Graham Ruffin. Graham, we know it's been very hot on the east coast of the U.S. Tennis chat alert. U.S. Open was very hot. Players complaining. Um... It's also very hot in the UK at the moment. I know because I'm in the UK at the moment and I'm very hot right now. You, sir, are not only in the UK, but you have a giant comforter all around you (laughs) encasing you in heat. How are you? Yeah, I also sit with this giant furry blanket on my feet to stop any like sound getting out from the bottom underneath the desk as well so these are the measures that i take to ensure a clean audio hopefully someone out there appreciates it and i'm not just losing a stone in body weight every recording for the heck of it i mean we appreciate it Graham. definitely oh thank you even though yeah your your anti-acoustic feet that you're covering up we appreciate you putting a blanket on that thank you very much i mean uh, the other way of looking at this is that Graham has discovered like the new diet fad and it's and it's <laughs> yeah. podcasting under quilts. And, and maybe we just turn this into a business idea of Graham sort of advising on the best ways to lose weight yeah. while podcasting. I'm working on a book. It'll be ready for Christmas. Uh, it's the podcast diet. <laughs> yeah, the podcaster's good. diet. You've heard of keto. Now try quilt feet. 
Coming from Graham Ruthman <laughs> to a store near you. Uh, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer for more hilarious banter just like that. Uh, bonus episodes, videos, and much, much more. Access to our Discord as well, where all the cool kids are hanging out. If you'd like to support us, that is the best way to do so. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. I'll thank you very much. What do you say, Joe? Should we get to some listener questions? Sound good? Yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Right. All right. Let's do it indeed. Clay W. Clay W. has been in touch. How important is a player's weight in European soccer and how much do we trust player weight resources online? For instance, Pedri is listed at 60 kilograms or 132 pounds on Barcelona's website. It seems like that would be a pretty major disadvantage going up against larger opponents, especially from other leagues. Uh... Joe, I'll start by saying, for one, I'm glad that all employers don't have to put their employees' weights on the websites. That would be hard for Taylor a Taylor didn't people. make you do that? That is bizarre, because <laughs> he definitely did for me. I just let everybody self-report at 6-3-2-15. That's yeah. the new standard, so we can ah, just go with that. The old Fulton County Jail technique. I like where <laughs> your head's at, Taylor. Very nice. Um, yeah, Joe, looking at some of the... Some, some of these resources about player weights, it's difficult because obviously a weight is a specific moment in time for a start. Um, and some Whoa, of these Oh, you players... just blew my mind with that. <laughs> right, right. Time's a flat circle, Joe. And some player weights are quite light as well. I was looking at Luka Modric is listed at 66 kilograms, 145 pounds. Neymar, only 68, only two kilograms further, 149 pounds. So how much weight are we putting in weight, Joe? I put like zero stock in both parts of this question. I like this question from Clay because I think one of the things that makes soccer interesting is that it feels like it appeals to a broad variety of athletic types. Right? You think about the NFL or the NBA and there's a very specific group of people that can compete in those sports. There is, I guess, a specific group for soccer in that if you're really tall, it's probably not going to go great for you because agility and your ability to move in tight spots is really important. Peter but other than high, that... Yep. Yeah, fair enough. There's there's one out of every, I don't know, 10,000 or so that, that really would be an outlier there. But like in, in soccer, it really does work out for a lot of more average people. So I, I don't put a lot of stock in how important weight is. I think about the greatest soccer player of all time, Lionel Messi. He's a small dude. He's a slight dude. And yet things he does with a soccer ball are absolutely unmatched. So that's that's on the weight side. I really don't think it matters much. I, for for particular player types, being a really slight center back could be more difficult and, and probably would be if you're going to be entrusted to make some last ditch challenges and to body players off the ball. Those are things that you might need a little bit of size for. But in general, I, I just don't think it's very important, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the league, any of that stuff. The, the, <laughs> the anecdotal evidence here, this isn't weight related, but it is height related. So Tim Weah, I looked up Tim Weah. He's listed at six foot on Google and on the USMNT's website. I've stood next to Tim Weah multiple times and looked slightly down at Tim Weah. And I am not yet six foot at this moment in time, Ryan. Maybe if heights a moment in time, I might get there before I die. That's not gonna happen. Tim Weah is shorter than me and I am not six foot tall. You can connect the dots on that. It's like in high school basketball when everybody is just self-reporting like three inches taller than they actually are in hopes that they'll be listed and seem more imposing for, for the opposition. It just, it, it's not real, it's not accurate, and it's probably not particularly important. Yeah, Joe, I'm convinced they let them, uh, they do the height measurements with them wearing cleats on concrete. That's yeah. definitely going to add a little bit to that height. I'm with you that every now and then we'll cover games in person, and it is sort of 
shocking occasionally when you you meet a person that you expect to be like six foot four because every NFL player and every NBA player is a minimum of six foot four and that player is actually like five seven or five eight uh, I yeah I also don't put much stock in the listed weights the listed heights and and I do I think put more stock into how size can be an advantage or a disadvantage. I think of somebody like Sergio Ramos and how often he was deadly in the air. And I think a lot of that has to do with his veteran uh, like mindset, but then also his physical abilities. And I think he knows how to scrap. I think he knows how to grapple. I think he knows how to kind of throw that weight around. I would presume that he's a little bit bigger than, say, a 19, 20-year-old center back who's uh, very tall but very skinny. I think there is an advantage there, but I agree with the overall point that I think soccer is a sport that allows for different body types, different speeds, different skill sets. And I think that's one of my favorite things about it. To some extent, it's one of the reasons why I never really found the what if our best athletes were playing soccer argument that compelling, because I think it's almost always what if our biggest, strongest athletes. And I don't think that necessarily lends itself to being good at soccer. I think there are many, many other components. So to some extent, size doesn't really matter that much unless you're looking for like a physically battling player, in which case it definitely does. I suspect that when Tim Weir was was measured as Joe, what did you say? Six foot is apparently foot. his yep. his height. Yeah, I suspect maybe he was on Sergino Des' shoulders and he was just <laughs> wearing like a big trench coat and <laughs> like over the two of them. And that's a what, big that's red what basketball jersey trench yep. coat because that's all Sergino Dest wears. Yes, exactly. Similarly, I think I, I found that Luke Shaw. I know Carl Anka tweets this every so often. Luke Shaw is reported as six foot one, which. I'm just not buying that for a moment. So yes, there is, there's some weird reporting going on with with players' heights. I, I broadly agree with them, the, the two of you. Um, I don't know if it's much of a disadvantage necessarily. I do, however, think there is a difference between between being light and weight and being lightweight as a player. Right. If that makes yeah, right. any any sense. So you know, I think of I think of Messi as well. Joe, you mentioned Messi. He was 65 uh, kilograms in 2010. Now, that is quite light, but I remember Messi playing in 2010 and trying to knock him over was almost uh, was almost impossible. He had a very low centre of gravity. Whereas I look at someone like Marcus Rashford, who's maybe a, a good example on, on the flip side, when he breaks through, he maybe is a little bit lightweight. And, and over the last few seasons, we have seen him pack a little bit of muscle on. He is maybe a little bit um, more difficult to knock over now. And I remember actually last summer, I'd be surprised if Pedri is still... 60 kilograms, I doubt anything that Barcelona numerically have to report officially, but I would I would doubt he's 60 kilograms now because I remember he came back from preseason a year ago and he looked noticeably bigger. He'd, he'd been on the muscle milk, I think, so maybe he's a little bit heavier than 60 kilograms now, but even when he was that light, I wouldn't necessarily say that he was a lightweight player. This is a player who has played in major tournaments and World Cups and Euros at Champions League level for Barcelona. And I don't really think he gets knocked around much. So, yeah, there is a difference between being light in weight and being lightweight, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Also, maybe we should talk about the different positions on the field as well. Uh, It could be advantageous to be a bit lighter. If you're Arjun Robin and you're cutting in inside the box and you're going over like a feather, you don't need another 20 pounds on you, right? For him, it helps being lightweight for his style of play. I think the positional differences do play a part here, you know, and and even some of the different physical attributes. We've gone into height a decent amount in this question as well, because I think these things are related. If you're a goalkeeper, being taller and having a longer wingspan, even though they're kind of playing a whole different sport, is helpful. If you're a winger, Ryan, I think that's a great point. Having, uh, Having a little bit less on you could be helpful as you change directions. And that's why if you think of a lot of the greatest wingers in the world, you're thinking of Messi types, you're thinking of Robin types, you're not thinking of Adama Traore. 
types really and, and there aren't that many of those in soccer to begin with maybe, maybe we should be but that would require him like actually doing helpful things on the soccer field for long periods at a time so it does depend on the position and even how you interpret that position right you can think about being a number six you could be a Sergio Busquets number six who is tall and lanky and, and not super tall but is just a lanky dude and not very well built, but he is incredible at that spot versus you think of someone like N'Golo Kante, who's smaller and not incredibly imposing physically, or Tyler Adams, but they are more well built for their height. So yeah, it just depends a lot about what you do on the field as well. One other thing for me with my like very elementary understanding of uh, m- muscles and science is, is that players, I think when they want to bulk up, sometimes focus on upper body. They focus on their arms and their chest and they, and they try to add muscle mass there. Uh, and to my understanding, that can be problematic because if you're not then working out the leg muscles, you are putting more weight, more strain on those leg muscles, and you can then see a corresponding rise in hamstring injuries. Jose, uh, excuse me, uh, Jose Altador, not jo- not Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho has less to, uh, concern about this, but Jose Altador, <laughs> I believe, a while back talked about this, about how he added a ton of mass because he wanted to be able to physically compete in the Premier League, but as a result... Uh, had a corresponding rise in hamstring in- injuries, both poles and strains, and credited a lot of that to do with not adding that that extra muscle mass in the legs. So I think sometimes even carrying more weight, as Joe said, can be a problem both for center of gravity, for balance, but then also for the strain it puts on your legs. Yeah, Taylor, also worth noting that calves are the hardest place to add muscle mass. Milhouse taught me that. <laughs> I don't even know that English. reference, but I'm sure I'm sure he did. It was a deep one. Uh, Clay W, thank you very much for your Does anyone question. on The Simpsons have calf muscle mass? I feel like they're all just straight legs. <laughs> That's why. It's the hardest place to do. There's a lot of dancing. <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed. Let's dance over to Scott King's question, shall we? Uh, Jerry Seinfeld voice. What's the deal with Jao Felix? That was a bad Jerry Seinfeld voice. I remember him being very, very promising, but it seems like his season with Chelsea was rather poor, and Atletico are having problems offloading him, except to Barcelona. Has the game evolved past this type of player, asks Scott. Uh, Graham, what do we think here? Still only 23, is Jao Felix. Uh, Obviously cost Atletico Madrid uh, an awful lot of money, 126 million euros when he signed for them. Still on the books there. Uh, He's done the old reverse Griezmann, now at Barcelona on loan. (laughs) Um, but has had his injury. Well, the troubles. thing is, Griezmann also did a reverse Griezmann by going back. So yeah. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's coming for Yao oh, Felix gosh. in the future. Yeah, maybe so. What do we think? What do we think of him? I, he's a very confusing player. I, I think Yao Felix's biggest problem was that he picked the wrong career path. I think he is a player who needs a lot of the ball and he gets into half spaces. I thought you were saying he should have been like a chef or something, yeah, Graham. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not quite like that. Yeah. Although although who knows, you know, maybe that might have been his his calling. Maybe he's watching the bear now and he is <laughs> ruining his uh, decisions that he's made in in his life. He probably ruins the decision to join Atletico Madrid. That's what I'm getting at here. So he's a player who, as I say, needs a lot of the ball. He wants to get into half spaces in between the lines, and his move to Atleti just didn't allow him to do that now there was talk at the time that he 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 joins Atleti about Simeone trying to evolve Atletico Madrid and make them a bit more expansive Simeone's spoken about doing that like three or four seasons and it never really happens and Yao Felix became a victim of that then he goes to Chelsea who are an absolute mess last season nobody plays well in the second half of of last season so I don't think it's really fair to, to judge him on that, that's another poor decision for him. Had he gone to Barcelona as a teenager, which is obviously where he is now, then then maybe he'd be a different player by now. But he is 23, and, and Ryan, you're right, that's not terribly 
old, but it's not terribly young either. You're coming into the part of your career where you're really needing to start. You're, you really need to start making strides. You're kind of coming into maturity in terms of your profile as a player. And I just wonder if Yao Felix has missed out on some really important development time in his career. And to be honest. I wonder whether he'll be able to make amends for that because he's gone into that Barcelona team. It feels like they don't really have a plan for him. I mean, stylistically, in terms of what he's good at, maybe he's he is a better fit for Barcelona than, than he was for Atletico Madrid. You'll see more of the ball. But looking at that first team, I can't really plot him in a position and say that's going to be his position. And that's been another issue for Yao Felix has been nailing down a role that is his. I mean, is he a winger? Is he a number 10? Is he a second striker? He's even played as a lone striker at times. Is he a, is he a, a midfielder? A bit deeper in central midfield I don't really know the answer to that and I suspect most people in football don't know the answer to that either hmm Taylor do you know the answer to that you look like you know the answer um I, I think Graham has done a really great job of getting through a lot of the stuff written about Jao Felix to actually look at what the problem is. I think he he's done a great job there because so much of the prevailing narrative seems to be lack of work rate. He's kind of lazy. We don't really know what we're going to get out of him. He doesn't have a good end product. And so much of that feels like it is coming from Diego Simeone and Atletico Madrid and maybe to some extent Chelsea, uh, but mostly Atleti. And I think a lot of that has to do with this falling out there, him publicly saying he wants to leave for Barcelona, which kind of puts them in a position of they can't move him on elsewhere. But I think the reason why there is that criticism, in my mind, connects to exactly what Graham said, probably that he shouldn't have signed for Atleti in the first place. If we go back to when he does, he is this record brick in signing, but it's after uh, Barca have dropped a huge amount of money to bring Griezmann from uh, Atleti to Barcelona. And I think there's this idea that Jao Felix is this young teenager who can score goals and is really creative and will run a lot. And that was the mistake. Uh, and, and so they bring him in, expecting him to do Griezmann things, which is run a ton, get back on defense, but then carry the ball forward and then get into goal scoring positions. I saw this written about a lot at the time and after that Atleti require their strikers to be both playmakers, to be creators, but then also to be goal scorers. And he doesn't really want to do that. Jao Felix wants to make those runs into the half spaces, make the runs into the box to get on the end of, of cutbacks and crosses. He, he's about smart runs, smart timing, but then creativity and flair. And none of those things really fit with what Atleti want. And so I, I agree that I think a lot of it was Simeone is going to evolve his style, which feels maybe like a thing that the Atleti board were sort of pushing for and wanting to have happen. And when that doesn't become the case, then you're asking Jao Felix to do things that he doesn't really want to do naturally that don't come to him naturally and he hasn't done before. Diego Simeone also doesn't seem like the type of manager who is going to tolerate a player not doing everything asked 100%. And so I think that goes a long way towards explaining why he hasn't looked so good. But then also why the narrative has been, he doesn't do a lot of running, he's kind of lazy, he wants to stand. And I feel like that's where this question sort of comes from is like, is he just a classic number 10 who wants to uh, be fed the ball and then create? And I'm not sure that's what he is. But Xavi's uh, concerns, at least as I understand them, have been about work rate and his lack of effort or perceived lack of effort. And I, and I think... All of that is sort of a secondary thing, if not even the real thing. And so for me, it feels like this is a move where he goes to a Barcelona team that are pretty good, that have a ton of talent. And I think if they put him into a position where he is sort of making runs in the box, if he is sort of making runs into those half spaces and getting on the ball, I think that's where he thrives. And I can see a reality in which he he does really well here and this ends up being a smart move. So I'm a little more optimistic than I was having 
like not done any research. So thank you to Scott King for this question, because it makes me come away thinking I have a better understanding of what's gone wrong, but how it could end up going right. Can anyone remember the club that Atletico Madrid beat to this signing? Apparently, Yao Felix was going to another club. The deal was done. I've just Googled to, to, to jog my memory there to make sure I've got this right. Apparently, he was going to this club. It wasn't going to Atletico wow. Madrid. Can anyone remember what Can you give us a country? I'll guess Man United off the bat. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Other one. Uh, the, oh, okay. He was going to Man City in 2019, which just makes me think man, his career really could have panned out differently yep, because yep. the way that Pep likes his wingers to be kind of like Riyad Mahrez and Grealish, like control, controlled wingers. They're not orthodox wingers. And that is kind of the player that Yao Felix is. And I just wonder, how does he look with four years under yeah. Pep at this point? And that, that he must think that as well. Like he must rue that decision. And, and this is, we talked about this recently on an episode. At this point, I don't remember which one, but like the odds are when it comes to transfers is that they're not going to work, right? It, it always feels like you look back and think, oh man, these three things should have been different or this club would have been a better fit for him in hindsight. And that's certainly the case with Yao Felix when he goes from Benfica to Atleti in the first place. It, it hasn't worked out. Taylor, I, I love kind of where you got to at the end of that point. Uh, it, like basically, I think this is Yao Felix's best chance to succeed so far in his career outside of Benfica. And that doesn't say a lot, to be clear, because Barcelona is still incredibly chaotic and Xavi is still kind of trying to find his way and they've made a number of transfer moves that are going to have an impact on exactly how he sets up this squad. But it's a better environment for him than Chelsea and it's a better stylistic fit for him than Atleti was. The question is just where he plays. And Graham, you kind of got onto this. He's not really a true number 10. He's not, he's not a winger either. He's like a second striker. He wants to be in central areas but he's not going to do the hard work to hold up the ball and do some of those other things that you would expect a true number nine to do. And I would imagine the compromise is going to be to put him in the half spaces. And that's what everybody's gotten onto. I would totally agree with that. He comes off the bench against Osasuna in Barcelona's last La Liga game, and he's playing in the left half space. Like that is the obvious place for him. The challenge is Yao Felix needs others around him to do the dirty work. He needs people to do some of the defensive work. He needs people to do the, the direct running in behind. And Barcelona theoretically are structured to, to provide that for him. The question is just if he can find a way to really impact this team as the team itself is still trying to find itself over the course of the season. I am, I'm hesitant to say that I'm, I'm like really optimistic about this, but it could work because we all recognize that Yao Felix on talent is still absolutely one of the best players in the world. All right, we end on a positive note. Thank you, Scott, for that question. We'll come back after this break talking about Mercurial players, talking about the Colorado Rapids, oh boy, and much more. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service. 
Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Gerard Panacook has been in touch. Who are some mercurial players, i.e. Balotelli and Shakiri, who had high expectations placed on them when they signed for a team and then they actually lived up to or exceeded those expectations. For context, says Gerard, I'm a Chicago Fire fan who knew signing Shakiri was a 50-50 gamble, but I'm still disappointed that he's not hitting the level he should be. Now, Taylor, when I think of this question... Mercurial players who did live up to their hype and expectation. I'm drawn to some of the successes that Real Madrid have. I don't know if I'm mm. quite fitting into the mercurial bracket here. Yeah, uh, Jude Bellingham is a good example now. You know, shirt retired at Birmingham. High, high hopes wherever he's gone. Dortmund, amazing and kept it going. Gareth Bale, I think you could argue, same thing. Maybe all Madrid fans wouldn't agree, but I think you can look at his career trajectory there. Even going back to like Zinedine Zidane going to Madrid in early 2000s. There's... Right, are these, of, so maybe it's yeah. worth pinning down what, yeah. mercu- what each of us think mercurial means right. because that is a difficult word to define right, so right, I, right. I think I think of it as like an unpredictable player yeah is, how, is what I think of I think I think and that in and of itself I think gets to the issue with the question which is I think once a mercurial player like achieves what was expected or overachieves what was expected they just become a good player sort of like I think the so where I took this was a player who gets hype occasionally would reach the heights that were expected, but then also would have dramatic downfalls. Maybe they come back up. And so it's more of a like big swings, big misses sort of player for me. So I I didn't have either of those players. The player that I feel like most comes to mind is Ricardo Koreshma, who got like, if you look at his club history, has so many huge clubs played for. And yet I would say where he was most successful was Besiktas, where he was just allowed to do what you want. Score Trevellas from 40 yards out. Why not? We'll build the team around you. And I think he comes to that club not having, I mean, having a ton of hype, but there's not a ton of expectation at that time. Besitash, like the third or fourth best club in Turkey. Uh, but I think with the profile and pedigree that he had, it felt like, oh, this is a guy who should dominate. And he did. And so in that way, I, I think of him as a player who sort of had that 
career, that sort of trajectory of ups and downs, and sometimes was going to be really good and sometimes was just going to be completely anonymous. Um, and, and I think of him as a prime example. The only other one I could really think of when it comes to a player who has kind of streaky moments or flashes of success, this one might be a little more controversial, would be Ronaldinho, maybe? Just that he has those moments where he is the best player in the world and seems like, oh, like no one can hang with him. He can do incredible things, but then also just has moments where you don't even know if he's going to show up for a game similar to Neymar. You don't know if he's even if he's there, if he's showing up for the game and and has streaks where he's not looking very good or doesn't seem as focused. And and so I think of him as a player who then occasionally would make a move and do next level things, but then also sometimes just sort of not show up, not compete the way we expected. And and he's another one who I think of as sort of mercurial in that way. I, I had Ronaldinho on my list as well. Maybe I need to look up the word more because I thought you could call Zidane a mercurial talent, surely, Graham. Subject so to would, sudden or unpredictable yeah. changes of mood or mind. Right. So right? before Zidane? I research this, well, certainly unpredictable changes of mind. <laughs> that can't be denied with with Zinedine Zidane I think we're all going to have different answers here because we've all taken this question in a a slightly different way but the way I took it was a player who I considered or was considered unpredictable or flaky and then they make a move and Mm. all of a sudden they just hit that next level and they find that consistency so my my, the best example I could think of when I set out the framework in that way was Eric Cantona so when he joined Manchester United from Leeds Ferguson faced real questions. I have watched the Ferguson documentary, which shows the press conference of him signing Eric Cantona. And he is given a bit of a grilling by the press, who up until that moment, Cantona had been disruptive at Leeds. He'd basically been exiled from the from the first team squad. He'd struggled for consistency. And that was reflected in how Minot had only paid a million pounds for him, which wasn't a tiny fee at the time, but it equally wasn't a giant fee. You know, Alan Shearer goes for 15 million pounds a couple seasons Later, then, as Taylor will know, and most listeners will know, he goes on to become one of the most important players in Minot's entire history. Another one that sprung sprung to mind was Arjun Robin. Uh, second mention of him in this in this episode and um, was at Chelsea and then at Real Madrid had talent but struggled to string it all together on a regular basis until he moves to Bayern Munich and then becomes one of the best wingers in the world for about 10 years and then finally one one further candidate an MLS candidate I wonder if Sebastian Jovinko counts who obviously was a player with a lot of potential or a lot of talent and played at a high level in Italy but did have a bit of a reputation for being inconsistent when he joined Toronto and then was incredibly consistent and really set the standard in MLS at that time and is one of the best players to have ever played in MLS given what he did for TFC so those were the the three names that that came to mind for me. I love that Giovinco shot Graham I did not think of that I had another MLS adjacent name does Laton count because I like everyone else had a, a little bit of a hard time defining Mercurial, I know he's been pretty good everywhere he's gone, but he was really good for the Galaxy. And the question was, like, he's old, right? Is he still going to to do much for this club? And he, he very much did that. And then even the move after that is the move that I spotlighted. Going to Milan at 37 years old and scoring 25 goals in less than 3,000 minutes over that season where he moves and the following season. Like that That's just absurd. And for Zlatan to continue to do that, I think is notable. The other one that came to mind for me is an, a national team one. It's Paul Pogba for France in particular, not at club level, but for France. Manchester United was an absolute mess and wasted basically the prime of Paul Pogba's career, what should have been the prime of his career. But in between and sort of along the way, we got to see Pogba do just absurd things. I think about for France as they won the, the World Cup in 2018 
and some of the stuff he did at the most recent Euros, even though France don't make a deep run, this guy was out there running the game as a number eight in the midfield. I have a hard time thinking of international performances that have been quite as strong as some of the ones we've seen from Paul Pogba over his last couple of major tournaments. It's sad that you know maybe we we never really got to see that at club level outside of some good early years with Juve. All right, good stuff. Thank you, Gerard, for that question. We go now to Cam Tate, who says very succinctly, Joe Lowry, can the Colorado Rapids be fixed? Oh, boy. So we tackled this on our uh, Americans in Action uh, MLS show uh, earlier on the feed, and a vague attempt at a fix has been attempted very recently with Robin Fraser, the coach, of course, uh, being um, um, removed from duties after four seasons. But things ain't good, Joe. No, and, and I think the Rapids can be fixed. And we got into a little bit of this on a show earlier this week, Ryan, as you said. I want to go through, because we've talked about it some, I want to go through a different angle and look at a case study for maybe how to fix the Rapids or to look at a club that I think has set the tone for how to succeed as a low-spending team in Major League Soccer, and that's to look at the union. I said recently that the Rapids have spent the fourth least on salary, according to the MLSPA, over the last three seasons combined among teams that have been in the league for that entire time. A team that's right down there with them is the Philadelphia Union, and they have consistently finished top or, or very near the top of the Eastern Conference. They made a run to MLS Cup last year. They've competed in continental competitions in the Champions League and done quite well there as well. So my question then is, what do the union do well? If we can sort of acknowledge that under the Cronkies and KSE, the Rapids aren't likely to become top spenders in Major League Soccer, barring some sort of ridiculous change of heart, the question becomes, well, how do they do other stuff well? Because the reality is the Rapids haven't spent money which makes their margins slimmer when it comes to finding talent. And they haven't actually acquired a lot of talent to make their ceiling particularly high on a consistent basis in the Western Conference. So the union and what they do well, I think boils down to three big categories. The first bucket is that they've got a good coach and a front office to instill them with a playing style to then identify quality players. Jim Curtin has, I think, become one of the more well-regarded coaches in Major League Soccer Seems to me that he's done a good job, maybe not the best of the best in MLS, but but has done well with the Philadelphia Union. And then Ernst Tanner coming in and doing a fantastic job reshaping the club and giving them the identity as this kind of Red Bull light transition team. And, and that was not Jim Curtin's MO before Ernst Tanner got there. That has helped Philadelphia develop a culture and develop a way of playing that then they can go out and find players that fit within that particular system. The Rapids don't have that. They don't have a real style of play. They don't seem to have a consistent setup. Robin Frazier did a little bit of that, but he only has so much control. This is when I look to Porik Smith, who's the club president, has been with the Rapids, I believe, since 2015. Uh, That kind of has to start from the top down. And with Colorado, it has not. The other two buckets, if, if the coach in front office and having quality people in those roles is the first part, the second for the union is the academy. Like the academy churning out players to either generate transfer fees or to contribute to the first team or ideally both. Brendan Aronson, Paxton Aronson didn't contribute much to the first team, but got him a little bit of money in the transfer market. Mark McKenzie, uh, they have other elite talents coming up in their academy right now. The Rapids have done some of that to give them credit. Cole Bassett, Sam Vines, they've given them some room to develop, but there's a lot more room. Taylor, you and I spent time with Travis Clark in D.C., and he knows more about the USU soccer landscape than almost anyone. It's it's kind of Travis and Goss that set the tone on that stuff. And for backheeled, Travis wrote an article ranking every MLS academy, the union came in second, and the Rapids came in at 21st, which I think gives you a little bit of perspective on the difference in how those academies are operating. And then finally, the last bucket, I know I've been talking for forever, is finding good players for cheap. 
right? If you're not going to spend money, the obvious question is, well, how are you going to find good players? And consistently, the union have identified good players from hard-to-reach places. Their center backs came from Norway and the Super Draft. Their star defensive midfielder came from Venezuela. Their star number 10 came from Hungary. Their best left back came from lower divisions in Germany. Like, this is where they found players. And then inside MLS, Julian Carranza is their top goal scorer. They got him on loan from Inter-Miami after Inter-Miami kind of fumbled the bag on that after making him one of their initial signings or one of their bigger signings off the jump. And now he's come in. They've got him on a permanent deal. And he's been killing it. And then you have the academy to kind of supplement that. The Rapids just have not hit. They've tried to find players in hard-to-reach spots, but the players they found and brought in have not been nearly as productive. So yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying the Rapids can be fixed, but it's not going to be easy because the margins are thin. But there is someone for them to look to. There is a club in the Eastern Conference that they can look to and say, hey, that's the blueprint. Now they just have to actually go out and follow it, which is really, really hard. Hmm. So, Taylor, Joe says uh, they can be fixed. Everything is going to be great. Do you agree? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I heard. That's totally yeah. what I heard. Yep. Honestly, I, I just sort of trust whatever Joe says, especially when it comes to the Colorado Rapids. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and retweet, re 10, re 20, whatever it is, uh, the things that Joe has said. Yeah, I think if you don't have one of the biggest budgets in the league, you need to stand for something. And as Joe mentions with Philly and another club, I would mention FC Dallas, who obviously are built on top of their youth academy if you don't have the budget to sign big players you need to stand for something there needs to be principles that underpin everything that you do and yes I'm not an authority on on the Colorado Rapids they're not a team that I write about very often but from where I'm sitting they don't really seem to have that or any sort of identity so yes I retain everything that Joe said I mean I didn't like have you all weigh in when you first came on the Total Soccer Show I did also trust your resume Graham where it said (laughs) Colorado Rapids expert knows tons about the Colorado Rapids I feel like I've just been deceived in several different ways at this point. Yeah, um, did you did you get to the point about juggling as well? I would I would just <laughs> disregard that at this point. There is there's a little bit of Scottish presence with the Rapids, so there there's there's some tie yeah, in there for Graham. True. I, what I what I'll finish with, Graham. I think you're you're right, and I appreciate you emphasizing the fact that you kind of have to stand for something as a club that's not going to spend a lot. It's that's not just for like some philosophical uh, poetic reason right it's not just i think soccer gets romanticized in a lot of ways because it's been around for forever and and the cultural impact of the game has been incredible all over the world but like there are very practical reasons why having an identity as a business is helpful like it will help you identify talent it will help you try to get more out of the players that you already have it feels to me like so much of major league soccer is just floating in this i don't know like fluid where there's nothing they they don't stand for anything they don't actually try to go out and, and identify themselves in a particular way, whether that's style or recruitment or academy or whatever it is, so many clubs are floating in the middle doing nothing. And the Rapids have been one of those clubs while also not spending. So they're making it harder for themselves to get out of that middle, having an identity as a club, as it relates to your style of play and your recruitment, that that can be a game changer if it's implemented well. Joe, do you remember there was a report? I'm sure it was uh, an athletic report. It might even have, have have been as long ago as like two years ago. It was certainly over a year ago. And basically it was some of the bigger spending owners in MLS complaining to HQ about other owners in the league essentially not o- upholding their end of the bargain. Colorado Rapids are one of those one of those clubs in my mind and it's even more frustrating some clubs are just not not they're, they're owned by people that aren't that rich but with the Colorado Rapids they're even more frustrating because it's the Cronkies that own 
the Colorado Rapids, and then you look at Arsenal and what they're doing in the Premier League and the money that they've spent over the last few years. So I, I don't know whether it's just getting a way to engage the Cronkies a little bit more or finding new owners for, for that franchise, but it definitely feels like this needs to be a turning point for, for them in their kind of recent history. Yeah, it does indeed. And to tackle Ken's question, can the Colorado Rapids be fixed? Uh, if you ask Dan Cronkey, maybe they are don't need fixing and they are yep. a passive investment that's still making money every year. Mm, as an asset, that is. Interesting. Thank you very much, Camp, for that one. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to change the laws of the game again. Back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Shreyas Romani has been in touch. Hello, Shreyas. Uh, Shreyas has an England-centric question. Graham bristling at the mere thought of it. Here My favourite kind of question. Yeah. Gary Lineker, Alan Shearer, Michael Owen, Wayne Rooney, Harry Kane. England have had the good fortune of having a consistently elite striker starting for the national team going back at least 30 years. Could you rank these players based on their abilities? Uh... I think this is really hard question, Graham, because they're not all the same kind of player for a start. Yeah. Um, and I... Okay, I'll give you my order. I think, for me, it's Gary Lineker, top. Shearer, Kane, Oh, interesting, Rooney, okay. Owen. For me, Gary Lineker's top because he's not like England's top... He was England's top goal scorer before Rooney and Kane came along. But, you know, 1986 Golden Boot basically walks England to the Final Four in the 1990 tournament, gets that move to Barcelona straight after 86 when British-English players weren't going over to the continent for that kind of thing. I think he's he's not underrated, but maybe for the young'uns today don't realise how brilliant he was. Can you, can you give me your listing again? Sorry, I just wanted to get it down. I've got uh, Gary Lineker, number one. Alan Shearer. Classic Premier League battering round number two. Harry Kane, I know I'm a bit dismissive of him and his injury sometimes, but I'll have it as number three. Then Rooney and Owen, who once again I might also be putting low okay. because of injury concerns for Owen. Where's Evan Ferguson on this list? Oh, oh of course. Take you know once he starts playing for England seniors, Graham. Well, I'll, I'll let you know which he might, which he will. Right, right. He's going to do that. I actually think he can. So the new FIFA rules means that he's played six friendly matches, and I think that has locked him in now. So we'll work it out. We'll work it out, Graham. It's okay. Details. Sure. Um, so Lineker is an interesting one to me. I, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage with Lineker in that he was before my time. So I, I don't know if I've ever watched him play a 90-minute match. His, he had an excellent career, Gary Lineker. And if I'm just looking at Shreyas's question, he mentions the abilities. And I think that's where I've tried to rank these players as looking at how broad their skill set was as a player. And that's maybe where I marked down Gary Lineker. So I'll start at the bottom. Um, my number five is, is Michael Owen, which is a bit of a shame because he was a phenomenon as, as a teenager. There was talking of Evan Ferguson. Premier League tweeted out a list this week of the youngest hat-trick scorers in the Premier League in Premier League history. Michael Owen's on that list three times, which kind of underlines just how much of an impact he made as an 18-year-old. But I have to look at his whole career and also his his skill set. He was a little bit of a limited player, a, a, a penalty box poacher, had lightning pace when he was young, but that did fade over the course of his career. So number five, Michael yeah. Owen. And I'll, I'll say, I've Graham, put... I was actually at uh, Michael Owen's Premier League debut. I'm that old. Um, but I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> I, I put him at fifth as well for the, for reasons outlined. Yeah, had he maintained the level he showed in his younger years over the course of his career, he definitely would have been higher on this list. But anyway, yeah. number five, Michael Owen. I've put Lineker fourth. Um, seemed like a great finisher. As I say, excellent career. Played for Barcelona. Not many players get to do that. Excellent record for England at major tournaments. But 
his skill set was maybe a little bit narrower than some of the players higher in my list. Number three is Alan Shearer, where I'm maybe contradicting myself because I don't think Alan Shearer's skill set was particularly broad, as good a finisher as he was. Um, but he's the record scorer in the Premier League age and was just excellent at scoring goals and putting the ball in the back of the net. So he's my number three. My number two is Wayne Rooney. Um, that is really, really tough for me to decide between my number one and number two because, similar to Michael Owen, if we're talking about Rooney in the first half of his career when he burst through at Everton and then his first few years at Manchester United and that Euro 2004 campaign for England where he was the best young player in the world at that point, maybe he is my number one. But similar to Owen, I have to look at the full career. The second half of his career was very different in terms of how he played the game. And that puts, and maybe this is recency bias, but that puts Harry Kane as my number one because I think he has been one of the best all-round centre-forwards in Europe for a prolonged period of time now. We're talking at least five years. It's been him and Karim Benzema in terms of how he plays that role. He's 30 years old now, and I still think he's got another three years at least at the top for one of the biggest clubs in the world. So maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit in that his career has not finished, but I think when his career does finish, there'll probably be a bit more of a unanimous opinion that he was the best English striker maybe of all time. That's that's a good point. So I was thinking, if you think of like Apocalypse Now, the week it came out, people weren't saying it's one of the greatest films of all time. It takes a few years, right? So... Maybe maybe we'll have a different opinion. Maybe I'll have a Glynicresque opinion of Harry Kane in 20 years. Come and ask me in 20 years, Taylor. What do you say? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, in the meantime, I will tell you that I had a very similar list to Graham. I had Owen 5, Lineker 4, Shearer 3, uh, and then I had Kane 2 and Rooney 1. I think Rooney is the most unplayable player of this list. When he was at his peak, I think he could do so many different things that I think of him as being just the the biggest, most consistent threat maybe most varied threat I think Harry Kane is probably the most consistent threat in that he always like every single season after he kind of breaks through I kept expecting oh this is going to be the year he gets hurt this is going to be the year he stops scoring goals or doesn't score as many nope he just kept scoring uh, but also his hold-up play is really really excellent um, but I think with Rooney uh, it is his abilities and then I do think also just the silverware that he collects along the way is probably also part of why I put him in the position I do it is hilarious to me that all three of us had Michael Owen last when he is the only player on this list to have won the Ballon d'Or, which is yeah, maybe wow. a sign of the significance well, of the Ballon d'Or. That was a weird one, though. <laughs> <laughs> I hate, by the way, sorry, Taylor mentioned the Ballon d'Or, and this is like a random shower thought I've been having. I, I, I'm a fan that this is going to be the year that everyone else agrees that the Ballon d'Or is stupid when Messi yeah, wins it gonna... playing in Major League Soccer. That's what gonna it's going to take is, is MLS and people's hatred of MLS really condemning that award for what it is, which is like a, a little bit of a popularity contest, right? Um, but ultimately, I'm I'm thinking it's a sacrifice that's worth making because the Ballon d'Or is, is just that stupid. Yeah. I was going to say, Joe, you're going to have to do a quick pivot on that in a few weeks' time when uh, when an MLS player wins I, I, it. I really considered it, Graham, and I decided I refuse to pivot um, and that I will still condemn it regardless. Yeah, I, I obviously had the probably the hardest time answering this question of any of us, given that I haven't seen a lot of these players play. I watched some film. I did a, did a bunch of reading. Alan Shearer still has, according to Wikipedia, the goal's edge of this entire group, but Harry Kane's going to catch him, like for total goals in his pro career no, in at the, the club League. level. Yeah, nah, maybe not in the Premier League. But Harry Kane will catch Alan Shearer. If it's going from today, I would lean, and maybe this won't change after Harry Kane's retired, I probably would still lean Kane as this ruthlessly efficient attacker for such a long time with more to come. And then I might go Shearer as a pure goal scorer, Rooney, and then Lineker, and then Owen. 
But I think my ranking should be taken with multiple grains of salt. And that's what I've got to say about that. Joe, what if we were to base this on who did the best job of tracking back, winning a tackle, and then creating a goal in Major League Soccer? Where <laughs> I would, would you rank I would, <laughs> I would say it has to be Wayne Rooney at that okay, point, cool. Taylor. Um, I, think, I think it really does. I would give BWP probably the overall edge for English <laughs> strikers. But uh, the Wayne Rooney shot's a decent one there. Well, but Billy Sharp. Yeah, B- Billy Sharp scoring penalties for the Galaxy. I have no, I have no passion for Billy Sharp, but I'm trying, guys. Joe, did you call um, your Ballon d'Or thought a shower thought? By the way, I don't. Yeah, just like I was thinking about that randomly the other day. I I wasn't actually in the shower, to be clear. Um, Unlike Graham, I guess, who's actually recording from his shower right now. You just can't see it because the duvet. But I I was randomly thinking about the Ballon d'Or yesterday in my free time. Yes, Ryan. That's. I wish Graham would just tilt his camera up a little bit. That's all I'm asking. Um, (laughs) That's why I have the quilt on my feet to shield things. So there's you thinking about intelligent stuff in the shower. I'm thinking about why like dogs stick the car, stick their heads out of car windows, but don't like it when you blow in their faces. That kind of stuff. I would argue I'm... that is a more mentally stimulating conversation than the Ballon d'Or. That's <laughs> that's just my two cents. Taylor, had you finished your thought on this uh, conversation? Yeah, when really the best. Good. Okay, mm-hmm. very good. Thank you very much, Shreya Shravani, for your question there. A difficult one as it was. Final question from Kevin Tolley. Here we go. I know this has been asked before. But what laws of the game would you like to be added or subtracted to make soccer more attacking and thus more entertaining? Here are my suggestions, says Kevin. Would you? What do you think of the basketball over and back rule? Would that help foster attacking play? Also, unrelated to attacking play, but high on entertainment value, what if the player that earned a penalty was the player who then had to take said penalty? And if they were unable to take said penalty for medical reasons, the keeper would have to take it in their stead. Come on, come on. What other suggestions do we have, uh, aside from floating stadiums, which is also an amazing idea, Joe, says Kevin. Um, The over and back rule, Graham, I had to look it up. It's when you can't pass back over the halfway line. Did I get it right? uh... Is that it? Yeah. It's like backcourt violation, right? That's that's a basketball term. You. I know that from NBA PlayStation games that I played when I was a kid. <laughs> and still play sometimes. Excellent stuff. All right, I think I've got the answer here that we can all just hang up our um, hats on. Second half, shot clock. Shot every five minutes from either team uh, or possession team. Even if um, if you have to hoof it from the halfway line just to return possession to the opposite goalkeeper, basically as a, as a, a change of possession. Every five minutes, each team has to take at least one shot. Graham, every I win? five minutes. That yeah. is that is quite a quite a long shot clock. I thought you were going to say like thirty seconds. I mean, if yeah. you're going chaos, let's go full chaos and have a, a shot every thirty seconds. I'm it's time, uh, time wasting, right? It's like so like Barca can't pass the ball for fifteen straight minutes. They right. have to shoot. Is that what you're getting at? That's why second half as well. It makes the second yeah. half a bit more thrilling. It means the ball turns over a little bit more. Yeah. How often does that actually happen though? That like a team will pass the ball for five minutes straight. Like I can't imagine that happens at all. Or you very get often a game where like Newcastle Brighton, when Newcastle had their first shot in the eighty seventh minute. It limits that. Yeah, but if you're just getting bad shots, that's not really improving the entertainment factor. (laughs) That is here, right? I think that is absolutely the point. And and the same goes for the over and back rule, to be honest. I don't don't like that because it's going to devolve into Red Bull soccer. Like Red Bull is listening to this and smiling because all that means is when you pass the halfway line, you can only play forward, which, yes, it, it sounds like that's going to make things more entertaining. But I would wager that's going to lead to basically just either super low blocks as one team has passed the halfway line, which we already have, or long passes that lead to nothing. And, and I think probably the same goes for shots in, in the shot clock, Ryan, that you're envisioning. It's really hard to manufacture a rule that turns in that turns this game into something that is more high-flying entertaining 
without finding one that also makes it kind of uglier along the way. Oh, I've got some ideas for you, buddy. But Joe, <laughs> my, my first one, uh, what if what if instead of it being midfield, what if it was like 30 yards from your own goal? So once you've crossed 30 yards from your own goal, you can't go backwards, which basically means you can't yeah, pass back okay. to the goalkeeper at that point. Or the goalkeeper has to come 30 yards out to help with possession, because then I feel like we are opening up the opportunity for like lobs from distance. But it does mean that you have a shorter amount of pitch to work with. And it also means that if you're sort of miscontrolling, if you are under pressure, you can't just lump it back to the goalkeeper and alleviate that. You have to try to play your way out or risk getting caught. That's so, one where I feel like you could adapt it a little bit. So are we adding another line to the yeah. pitch then? Mm-hmm. Or is the referee, when Pep they cross, when they, when they cross the 30-yard line, the referee with the vanishing spray, like, is, hold on, everyone, <laughs> hold on, and like runs across the pitch spraying the, oh, well, no. spraying the line. We'll just, we'll just borrow from like Wimbledon and the like, and you just have uh, ball kids who, as soon as you cross, they do like the, when there's a... Like if the ball hits the net and the the ball boy comes out to collect it, we just have uh, that person run across with the line. Yeah, that's how we do it. Okay. Or it's just a permanent build-out line. That'd probably be easier. Let's find right. So now we're making every pitch like CenturyLink field. Yeah. I do <laughs> I do like that, that idea, Taylor. I think that makes it... I don't think it's a necessary ad. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have that much of an impact, but I think it would help alleviate some of the Red Bullness that I think comes with with the initial idea, you mentioned goalkeepers coming out of their box there and, and them having to be near the 30-yard the line or whatever it's going to be. Uh, I want to take that one step further and also implement Ryan's concept of the, the sort of running five-minute timers. I want goalkeepers to have to take turns sitting down for every minute of the game. So let's say Taylor's in goal and Graham's in goal. Minute one, Taylor has to sit down. Like, I'm, I'm talking full on crisscross applesauce. And then the next minute, Taylor can stand up and Graham has to sit down. That, to me... Feels like just the right blend of chaos and absolute time no. Joe, if you want to go full chaos, uh, it needs to be whack-a-mole style where there's like a little trap door in the, <laughs> the six-yard box and the keeper just like drops down and then pops back up and that's how yes. it works. Yes. Now I'm all in. I'm all Into in on that. this idea. Uh, while we're talking about, I guess, players being removed from the pitch, I do think two ways to actually create more attacking play that are one more likely than the other, the less likely would be the sin bin, basically of having the penalty box like you have in hockey, where instead of cards or maybe uh, to go with cards that you're then out for five or 10 minutes based on the infraction. So dissent, for example, if you're surrounding the referee and, and having words, maybe two players are sent off for five minutes and now it's, it's 11 V nine. It creates power plays. It makes teams have to defend more. It invites more teams to attack. I think that would be one way to do it. And then the other one that I think is more likely to happen. I think very likely to happen at some point in the next five to 10 years is just that the offside rule becomes daylight rule and that there has to be clear daylight between the attacker and the defender for it to be offside. So if their foot is like level with the defender, they're onside. I think that's probably where we'll go with it because then you can still have VAR draw those lines. It's just now, is there clear separation? Then they're offside. But I think that makes it harder to sort of have that, uh, the defender jumping in at the last minute to catch the person. Uh, And I think it it makes offside harder to basically utilize as an element of the game. But I think it invites more attacking play at the same time. Yeah, I also have that almost exact same concept, Taylor, in my notes here, uh, in my extremely um, intelligent um, ideas uh, list here. How how do you judge daylight, though? Like, I can just imagine them trying to... Okay, go. I would say, if if the decision is tight enough for what we currently constitute a VAR review, you always give the attacker advantage, which is always what you should do anyway. And I'm going to say it needs to be a ball's width of space before you could dispute any of that. That's real daylight, baby. 
I was going to go with the Sylvester Stallone movie Daylight, uh, and you just have to take a, a poster from that movie, and if you can fit it between the attacker and the defender, ah, then they're yeah, upside. I like that one. There we go. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah that's You're welcome. The one. You're yeah. welcome for that. Good movie. Totally makes sense. It. Is it good? No, it's a Sylvester Stallone movie. <laughs> I, 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 excuse me. Stop on my mom will shoot is a classic, Taylor. <laughs> Do you know the story of that movie, by the way? It makes you so happy. Yeah, he had to stop or his mum would shoot. That's the story. But that Schwarzenegger lied to him and said he was going to make the movie just to see if Stallone would be dumb enough to try to jump in and make it, and he did. <laughs> that makes me so happy. But anyway, don't watch that movie. Stallone's made some fine movies, don't get me wrong. Uh, but yes, uh, I like I like the daylight rule. I think there are the same issues, Graham. To your point, there is still a murkiness. You'd still have to probably have VAR. Uh, I, and yeah, like, I can imagine people, like referees be- and fans being like, that's not daylight, that's a shiny bit on the shirt. And like, you know, all sorts of arguments kid. like that. That's dusk. That's dusk at best. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. I'm with you. But I still think basically giving more freedom to the attacker probably opens up attacks. Yes, I believe it would. Uh, Joe, any more amazing ideas? Uh, I just like the one that Taylor always comes back to in extra time, just taking people off the field. We've already we've already gotten to some of those kinds of concepts. Extra time sucks 99% of the time. I know people tweet at me every time that 1% happens and completely ignore the other 99%, <laughs> yeah. um, such as life. But it's it's not good. It's not a good spectacle. It's just not. So <laughs> let's change that and make it better or just get rid of it in its entirety. That would be even better. But I'm not sure that really gets to what the question is asking. There we go. Uh, and of course, and um, to Kevin's actual, the other part of his question about the, the person who earns the penalty having to take it, I have just long not loved that idea. I think that's probably me taking the question too seriously and thinking about, yes, a player getting injured, but also a player who just doesn't want to take a penalty or is it in the right frame of mind being forced to do that and then missing and the abuse that would come with it. But yes, that's a much Shouldn't more serious penalty, then. Uh, perspective mm. then. What'd you say, Graham? Shouldn't have won that penalty then. That's their own fault. <laughs> Should have thought about that, about that before you got injured in the box, huh? I think, I think even if you are injured, you should have to take it, even if you're on a stretcher. Like, they, like the stretcher can be pushed in a way that nudges the ball towards the goal. What or, I, or, so, or like the paramedics like yeah, exactly. angle them in a way and then yeah. swing them on like a, like like a, a sabutio player. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to bridge a few of these, though, I, I do think what we've landed on is maybe just the automatic penalty taker should have to be the goalkeeper. And that way, if mm. they score, great, goalkeepers get goals. Uh, but if they don't, another chaos, advantage. baby, chaos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all into that one. All right, plenty more ideas there. Kevin, thank you very much for your question. Thank you, everybody, for submitting questions. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you'd like to do so. Hey, maybe even put some in the Discord. Uh, Patreon.com slash TotalSoccerShow for access to that. And we'll be delighted to answer. But in the meantime, Taylor Rockwell, you superstar you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ryan Bailey. Joseph Lowry, you super duper star. Thank you very much. Oh, I got a super and a duper, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thank you, Ryan, from me and my the quilt over my feet. <laughs> thank you very much, Indu Graham, and thank you, Lister, for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye!